Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to some of my students in winter of 2021 in a course where we were looking at the apocalypse across media, the post-apocalypse across different forms of media, using Emily St. John Mandel's novel Station Eleven as a tentpole, as a pillar around which we positioned other narratives. Today, we'll be looking at the seventh section of that novel, The Terminal, and how it comes into conversation with some poetry about a Martian sending a postcard home and the Stranger Planet comics of Nathan Pyle. Section 7 of Station 11 brings us... That sounded nice, right? Station 11. Section 7 of Station 11. I'm a poet and I didn't know it. We're, We're doing something with poetry today, so there's me. Just throwing some some rhyming in here. Um, but Section 7 of Station Eleven, the terminal, answers a number of narrative questions that we may have had as we're moving through just the plot of the novel. We've been doing some discussing in the last few weeks about motifs and themes, uh, areas of subtext, the stuff that so we, when we read between the lines, what do we find? And I wanted to just return ever so briefly to those plot elements. What we get in the seventh section of Station Eleven with the terminal is a catch-up with Clark, and we find out what's happened to him. We've had the, the you know not too many pages back finding out that he was going to the airport when the pandemic was occurring. Uh, we wonder you know what may have happened to him. He's a bit of an oddball in that we don't really have a strong attachment to him at this point in the narrative. Not in the same way I think that we could say that we have attachments to Jeevan or to Kirsten or to August, uh, to Arthur even, who, you know, we know what happens to Arthur, but we may be invested in his narrative. But Clark comes as a bit of a surprise. We've been getting little glimpses of him along the way. And then we get this, this section that is almost entirely about Clark's experience during what uh, Maximilian Feldner would say was the um, the apocalyptic event, and then moving into the post-apocalypse. So we get a little bit of that apocalyptic event as, as the, uh, the, the people at the Severn City Airport um, come together, and then some of the immediate stuff that, that happens with, you know, one group splitting off and go, getting on a plane and, and you know, seeing if there's anything out there, the um, scavenger approach of sending some people into town, into, you know, the near nearby uh, urban spaces to see what, what can be found, what can be salvaged from the wreckage of the world. And at the level of plot, that's Emily St. John Mandel keeping us interested as she moves the narrative forward. But again, we, we see that what we have here is not a vision of a violent, an explicitly violent apocalypse. There is a rape that happens, but she deals with it in, you know, roughly a paragraph's worth of text and doesn't, um, she doesn't focus on it. It's not where her narrative is going. 
Um, and we should always be, when we're, when we're analyzing, I think it's always important for us to stay with the narrative that is not the narrative that isn't. We don't, you know, we shouldn't be playing games of this is how the book should have ended, or this is what should have happened. If we don't like the narrative, we can always leave it on. Uh, we can always, we, we always close the book and not finish it. There's so many people I know who say, well, once I start a book, I just can't stop. And I'm like, no, you absolutely can. Uh, after I turned 40, I, I vowed that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't read narratives I wasn't interested in unless, you know, it was something for work or um, something I'd been sent for review. And I've, I've stuck to that pretty, pretty, pretty hard, you know, not, not reading things that I don't feel invested in. Many of my students, of course, have to read Station Eleven. They don't get a choice in this. But, uh, you know, when we reach that point, but rather than saying this is how this book should have ended, let's take a step away and, and, and go and find the narrative that we wanted to read. But Station Eleven is that kinder, gentler apocalypse. There are bad things happening, but Emily St. John Mandel is not concerned with them in an explicit manner. She continues instead to be concerned with the things that Maximilian Feldner isolates in his article about Station Eleven, uh, and that uh, Carmen M. Mendez Garcia is in some agreement about that focus. Uh, Mendez Garcia is not thrilled with the way that Emily St. John Mandel necessarily handles these elements of what they both agree on is culture and memory, these two nodes that are the foci of um, Emily St. John Mandel's novel, <clears throat> but they do agree that they're there and that that is what the novel is focused on. And section seven of the terminal is focused more on, according to Feldner, more on memory necessarily than culture, although I would, I would argue that there's always a little bit of overlap going on with those thematic elements. So the plot elements of this section of the book absolutely serve to push the narrative forward in a sort of page-turning what-happens-next sort of way. But they're also happening in a way that continues to develop St. John Mandel's theme of survival being insufficient. And we get that in this lonely space of an airport terminal that is abandoned. And it was not hard as I looked for images, uh, you know, royalty-free images. You don't always get what you're looking for. I think an empty airport would have been really difficult to find a year ago and today. So many pictures, so many photographs of an empty terminal. And the Severn City Airport terminal isn't empty. There are a bunch of people there, but <clears throat> it seems like there would be an awful lot of open space. Like there wouldn't be a lot of closed, you know, like they're not, they're not wall to wall in terms of, of the people who are there at the airport. My wife and I um, were coming back from London years ago and we went we our, our airplane was leaving through a new terminal at Heathrow. Now, Heathrow Airport is usually just wall-to-wall -wall people. I've experienced it since, and it was bananas. It's like LAX. These are airports that are bustling. People are coming from all points around the world. But this was this brand-new terminal, and there weren't that many planes that were leaving it as a result. And we walked in, and it, I remember saying, this feels like we're in an apocalyptic movie. I, f I feel like we, you know, like there was no one there. We walked in, there was no one there. I actually called out, hello. And um, some people who work for one of the airlines were like, yes. And they raised their arm and they waved. And all of a sudden this arm appeared over one of the kiosks. And I was like, oh, I guess we go over there. There's this great big empty space. And when we're used to spaces being inhabited, having them emptied has this sense of the strange it's familiar, but it's unfamiliar. And that's something that we're going to talk about a number of times today. When fiction takes that which is familiar 
And to use the language of the last lecture, you use Emily St. John Mandel's language of Miranda, uh, thinking about how things might be just ever so slightly different if the dial was just turned a little bit to the side. And we get that with, we get that with narratives. They, they don't give us a, a completely, um, a completely unfamiliar space. They, they take things that we are familiar with or that, that the author assumes their audience will be familiar with. We can't guarantee that everyone who experiences a narrative will necessarily find everything within them familiar. I mean, it is one of the things that makes Shakespeare, for example, difficult for us is that so much of it is unfamiliar. The language is so strange. It's so foreign. It's, it's hundreds of years into the past. But we want to remember that too today, that the language of Shakespeare is this concretization that the that the plays of Shakespeare are concrete archival moments from the Elizabethan period. We wouldn't know what the Elizabethans spoke like without Shakespeare, without the writers of that era having um, made these archival uh, works. And, and I don't think in, in any respect that they, they thought to themselves, you know, and geez, I better write this play about Romeo and Juliet or about Hamlet so that people can remember what uh, language was like in our day. In our own time, we sort of get this impression that the way we speak today will be the way that people will speak forever. And yet what we, we learn if we look into this is that if we were to be sent back, you know, uh, 400 years to Shakespeare's time, we would find it difficult if we were to be sent back even further, if we were sent back, say, a thousand years, would we understand the English we were hearing at all? And it is English. It's just old with an E on the end, English. Um, and, and, and yet we get this sense that like the way things are today are the way they'll always be. The way things are today is the way things will always be. And then we get Emily St. John Mandel's The Terminal. And it's this very strange place in the narrative where I really felt more than in other spaces that I was getting a blurring of the map and the territory insofar as my experience uh, this last year with COVID. That, you know, these these people in an airport in a space that I can't even go right now, but these photographs as I was putting these slides together of the loneliness of these, the, these airport spaces with no one in them or with only one person in them seemed so strange. And then to read some of the, some of Clark's musings, some of the things that St. John Mandel renders as Clark's thoughts felt like echoes of my own experience in the last year where she writes towards the end of his second decade in the airport, Clark was thinking about how lucky he'd been, not just the mere fact of survival, which was of course remarkable in and of itself, but to have seen one world end and another begin. And here, here we have a little bit of what Maximilian Feldner talks about when he says that station 11 isn't really using one of the usual explanatory frameworks of post-apocalyptic narratives, which is eschatology coming out of the, um, we'd say religious or potentially biblical conception of a, a final destiny that will happen at the end of time. And that many post-apocalyptic narratives sort of play in that eschatological sandbox, rendering the end of the world that everything comes to an end. That's not entirely true as it turns out, because they're, you know, the going back to the earliest narrative of apocalyptic 
the apocalyptic that that I've, I've talked about this semester. The earliest strata of that being, you know, Noah's Ark or the ta the tale of Utnapishtim and Gilgamesh. That the flood narrative is also about one world ending and another beginning. That there that 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 Noah's Ark is is an apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narrative. But Feldner says Station Eleven isn't doing that normal eschatological thing where we have what we call a teleological endpoint, the end of the world. Things aren't going to keep going in a direction. Teleology, things are moving forward. Teleological endpoint, they stop. Station 11 doesn't do that. The beginning, we see one world end and another begin. The end of one world. There are a number of places in Station 11 where St. John Mandel renders the end of something as, say, the end of flight or the end of, you know, people using cell phones or the end of this or that. Clark has one of these musings uh, in in the in this same section that this uh, this last quotation came from. Uh, he'd known for a long time by then that the world's changes wouldn't be reversed, but still the realization cast his memories in a sharper light. The last time I ate an ice cream cone in a park in the sunlight, we get an echo of that section in the theater where she listed all of the things that you know wouldn't happen again. The last time I danced in a club. The last time I saw a moving bus. The last time I boarded an airplane that hadn't been repurposed as living quarters. An airplane that actually took off. And I love how she ends this one with, The last time I ate an orange. There is a way in which the map of a post, like even a post-scarcity world, such as the post-apocalypse that Kirsten is living in, is still a space of scarcity compared to where we are today. I can still go to my supermarket and I can still get an orange. I have not crossed the line of the last time I ate an orange, but I can think of a number of things that I, I could probably c construct my own the last time I blank. The last time I, I went on an airplane, I went to uh, Los Angeles and saw the last of the newer Star Wars movies with my sister. We saw them all, the original three, as uh, kids together. And she said, we should really see that last movie together. So I traveled to Los Angeles to see a movie. What a, you know, that's, that's, it's, it was remarkable. It was wonderful. I had a, one, I had a great time. I learned to longboard. Um, the last time I was on a plane, that, that's what happened right? The last time I drove to, you know, British Columbia last February for my, my father-in-law's um, memorial. These things that, you know, they were there. Actually, that was the last time I was on a plane. Now that I think about that. No, nope, that was my last flight. Um, was then. That was my last flight. What are yours? You know, stop to think about that right now. What is it that, you know, we, we haven't been able to do under COVID that you might be missing? And it's at this point, this is what, this is what happens. This is how the map blurs for us is that we get read by the text. I remember, uh, a guy who I was friends with years ago, who was an English teacher at one time. And he, uh, he would always say the text doesn't just, we don't just read the text, Mike, the text reads us. And I, I, I was like, what do you mean? So he explained it. And it's the idea that like, if I read something and it relates to me emotionally if it hits me in the feels as we used to say not so long ago language changes very very quickly the text remains the same shakespeare's text remains the same despite the fact that language changes emily st john mandel's text remains the same despite the fact that language changes language in this diverse dynamic froth always changing and we read something that that hits us 
that emo- that hits us in the sort of emotional space, gives us emotional resonance. And that's what I, you know, that's what he was meaning. And that's what I call getting read by the text. When we read something that hits us so hard emotionally that we go, oh yeah, me too. The map and the territory blur. And it's okay for that to happen. It's okay for us to have emotional responses to narratives. We don't always have to be analyzing them. In fact, I think more often than not, a narrative's ability to manipulate us emotionally is one of its one of the greatest things about fiction that we can, you know, I just need a good cry, right? We say that, right? I just need a good cry or I need a good laugh or I, I really feel like I want something that's going to scare me. Those are all emotional things and it's very rare, I think, that we come to narrative and say, I really hope it's going to teach me something deep and ideological. I mean, there are people for whom that is the diverse pleasure of a text, but most of us, when we bring Netflix up, when we go looking for a new book, we're looking for an emotional hit. Emily St. John Mandel gives us that emotional hit, although I don't think she could have ever known why she'd be hitting those of us who are reading Station Eleven this year so hard. People ask me, that, you know, say, are you going to still do Station Eleven this year? I said, absolutely. They said, don't you think that's kind of mean to your students? I think, no. This is, this is a narrative that is more relevant than it's ever been. It was far less relevant in the years that I taught it prior. That blending and blurring of the map and the territory. The loss of a thing, something that is, has gone away, it is no more, right? As, as Clark puts it, you know, the taken-for-granted miracles that persisted all around them. And what are these taken-for-granted miracles that Emily St. John Mandel imagines Clark missing? Well, he misses dialing a phone and calling somebody up right? And then he starts, he, he inadvertently creates this museum of civilization by going up to the Skyway Lounge at the airport and taking objects that people had left, like the one guy's got an American Express card and he ends up having Elizabeth and her son's um, passports, things that will ultimately in the future have no practical meaning but isn't that what a museum is full of? I mean, you can go to the you can go to the British Museum and you can see the very tablets that Gilgamesh was written on that they found at the Library of Nineveh when they excavated it in the 19th century. And you can see that. You won't be able to read it. The only reason you'd know what it says is because I've told you what what some of those tablets contain. But you wouldn't be able to read it. It would make no sense to you. And yet we've preserved it in a museum. Why do we do this? What is it about the human animal that makes us want to preserve those things? But there again, blending and blurring, mapping the territory, Clark inadvertently creates a museum. And he makes it out of these everyday objects, objects that are mundane for us, that, that, but that take on a sense of archaic wonder for the children that are born after the apocalypse. Children born into the post-apocalypse in, as Clark puts it at one point, this orangeless world. And I, I, years ago, thought about Craig Rain's poem, A Martian Sends a Postcard Home, as a way of giving my students an opportunity to experience a little bit, just a little bit, of what those children are experiencing in the Museum of Civilization. Because... What Rain does in his poem is he imagines an alien sending a message home about what happens on Earth. So these are everyday Earth things, but he he sees them through alien eyes. And so Rain renders the familiar, back to that idea, familiar, unfamiliar. And in doing so, this is what happens when we render the, the familiar, unfamiliar, is that it forces us to see it again 
as if for the first time. So I'm going to read through these and I want you to, as I'm reading, I want you to try to solve the riddle. Be like, what? Okay, what is that? What do I think that is? And, And write it down even so that, you know, you can't cheat. And then I will, I will reveal what it is. So I'm going to take the time to read each section twice. After the second time, I'm going to show you what it is, explain why that thing is what it is. And, and, and this, this is not poetry in the sense of Shakespeare. It's not poetry in the sense of Longfellow or Tennyson or Dickinson, but rather in the, in a sense, it's, it's, it's more like playing a riddle game. So here we go. A Martian sends a postcard home. Caxtons are mechanical birds with many wings, and some are treasured for their marking. They cause the eyes to melt or the body to shriek without pain. I have never seen one fly, but sometimes they perch on the hand. Caxtons are mechanical birds with many wings, and some are treasured for their marking. They cause the eyes to melt or the body to shriek without pain. I have never seen one fly, but sometimes... They perch on the hand. They perch on the hand. Mechanical birds with many wings. It's a book. Caxton referring to early printing press technology. It's a it's a an intertextual allusion. Allusion. Mechanical birds with many wings, and some are treasured for their markings. The le- letters on the page. They cause the eyes to melt. They make us cry, or the body to shriek without pain. Ah, you know something terrible has happened. Oh no. Um, and you know, some of you might be saying, I've never read a book that made me do that. I've read a book that I got so mad at, I threw across the room because I didn't like what one of the characters did. made me so mad. The ending of this one book, threw it across the room. So mad. We may do it with other types of narratives, but we can, we can say that narratives make our eyes melt and bodies shriek without pain. I have never seen one fly, but sometimes they perch in the hand. And if we, we open our copy, say of station 11, right to the middle and perch it in our hand, then we can sort of make that bird with many wings. And uh, if we bob it up and down, we could even make it seem to fly. All right. Mist is when the sky is tired of flight. Now, this one just comes right out and says what it's about. Mist is when, but it still makes things strange. Mist is when the sky is tired of flight and rests its soft machine on the ground. The sky is tired of flight. What a beautiful way of saying what mist is rather than just going, ah, we've got precipitation. You know what mist is from a scientific standpoint, right? It's a form of precipitation and it's, it's basically clouds that have gotten cool enough to come down to the ground and rests its soft machine on the ground. Then the world is dim and bookish like engravings under tissue paper. Well, here we run into something that's similar to the Caxton moment because we don't really associate the name Caxton with printing press, with text. So, you know, that one we have to go and look up because that's become so archaic that it's, it, it, it's meaningless to us now. To, this too, the, the world being dim and bookish like engravings under tissue paper. Engravings under tissue paper? What does Craig Ray mean? I think he's referencing the way that color engravings in books would have these, these bits of tissue paper and they were see-through and you could see whatever the color engraving was. So this was before some of the print advances that we've made, especially in the digital age in the last 20, 30 years. But once upon a time, if you got a book and it had color uh, pictures in it, those were printed on a different type of paper. They were probably printed on a different type of press even, and then they were, you know, glued in later. But they would put in this piece of tissue paper so that the ink from the regular pages wouldn't come off on that beautiful color engraving. 
but you could see it through that tissue paper. You'd be, you'd be reading the book and you could see right through it and you'd turn the tissue paper and you'd have a clear view of that image. Well, the world being dim and bookish like engravings under tissue paper doesn't mean as much to us anymore. We've lost the referent that Rain is working with here. So it's a good thing that he told us this was about mist because we sure as heck wouldn't know. He does the same thing again in the next section, but he's going to repeat the same uh, move in some ways because technology has shifted so that, again, we lose the referent here. Rain is when the earth is television. Rain is when the earth is television? It has the property of making colors darker. Well, you know, we could look at rain falling in an image and try to understand what is meant here. Rain is when the earth is television. And for me, I'm lucky. I read a short story by William Gibson that says um, that the sky was the color of television. This might even be one of his novels. But he says in it that the sky was the color of television turned to a dead channel. Well, when you turned things to a dead channel in the days that William Gibson wrote that, the days in which Craig Rain wrote this poem, you turn to a dead channel and you'd get static and that is what rainfall looks like. You get heavy rain falling and it looks a little bit like static from an old TV. You turn to a dead channel now and you'll just get black or maybe blue, but you won't get static. Not on these new TVs. And so the referent is, is, has gone missing. It's like I used to teach a poem that involved pulleys and it was referencing uh, clotheslines. That you used to hang your clothes on to dry, and very few of my students know anything about this. We live in an age that is mostly post-pulley, I guess, and post-static. Model T is a room with the lock inside. A key is turned to free the world for movement. So quick, there is a film to watch for anything missed. Model T is a room with the lock inside. And older listeners and viewers are going, oh, I know what this is. A key is turned to free the world for movement. So quick. There is a film to watch for anything missed. What's being referenced here? A car. Model T cars. Very old. Very vintage. Less old, less vintage when Craig Rain wrote these words. I don't know what he means by the movement so quick there is a film to watch for anything missed. That one's a mystery to me. Maybe it's the rearview mirror. Maybe. But why call it a film then? I guess because it looks like it's appearing on a screen? Sure. So that's a possibility. But what we know is he's talking about a car and he's making cars strange. But again, for my students, they may not know what a Model T is. It's a very, very old make of car. And if you're not a car buff and even beyond just regular car buff, you have to be like a, a buff of historical cars, old cars, classic cars, vintage cars. And so, you know, language can be meaningless if we don't understand the referent, if we don't have the information for what is, you know, what's being, uh, called upon there. Like, so, you know, people say like, oh, I find Shakespeare very difficult. Well, of course you do, because we don't, we don't understand many of the allusions that are being made. We don't understand all the intertextuality and my gosh, there's a lot of intertextuality in Shakespeare. The work is hundreds of years old. How could we ever expect it to be perfect for us to read? Martian sends a postcard home. Maybe we're the Martians now right? This has become very strange to us. But time is tied to the wrist or kept in a box, ticking with impatience. And even my students would get this one. Time is tied to the wrist, kept in a box, ticking with impatience. Oh, a watch, a clock. But what do we keep time on today? Cellular phones. So we keep time in a box, but 
that box has got a lot going on. And the Martian would have to be very puzzled about what we do with a cell phone. Time is tied to the wrist or kept in a box, ticking with impatience. What about the box? Probably a grandfather clock. At least that's, that's what I was thinking. Grandfather clocks or wall clocks, cuckoo clocks. Ticking with impatience gives us a hint to its meaning. This one is, is always fouls my students up when I do this uh, in person and we discuss what all of these things are. In homes, a haunted apparatus sleeps that snores when you pick it up. If the ghost cries, they carry it to their lips and soothe it to sleep with sounds. And yet they wake it up deliberately by tickling with a finger. In homes, a haunted apparatus sleeps that snores when you pick it up. If the ghost cries, they carry it to their lips and soothe it to sleep with sound. And yet they wake it up deliberately by tickling with a finger. A haunted apparatus sleep that snores when you pick it up. Well, in North America, it snores like this. It's a different sound in the UK. If the ghost cries, they carry it to their lips and the lip and the, the cry of the ghost used to be this or something like that, right? Now you can make your ringtone anything you want. Make it songs. And uh, ours, our, our ghost, our haunted apparati don't sleep. They, they don't snore in the same way. You don't pick up a cell phone and, and get that. We don't get dial tones. And yet they wake it up deliberately by tickling with a finger. Well, we still tickle our phones with a finger. We still do a little bit of doo boop 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 boo or I guess we'd be doing it with our thumbs, probably. Some people just do it with voice activation. But in the days of Craig Rain writing this, you had to dial. At best, boop, 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 press, pressing the keys. But tickling it with a finger. We carry it to our lips and we soothe it to sleep. Hello? We talk to it for a while. And if the Martian doesn't understand our language, then it certainly doesn't understand what it is that we're doing. Even though this is a Martian that write in English, right? So a phone, probably an old rotary phone. This one kills me. I absolutely love that it's in poetry. I love whenever poets do stuff like this because I think we get the impression that poetry can only be about landscapes, verdant landscapes. Only the young are allowed to suffer openly. Adults go to a punishment with water but nothing to eat. They lock the door and suffer the noises. That, that kills me. I think I want to call, if I ever have a band again, I'm just going to call it suffer the noises. And suffer the noises alone. No one is exempt and everyone's pain has a different smell. <laughs> Only the young are allowed to suffer openly. Adults go to a punishment room with water, but nothing to eat. So where is there a room with water but nothing to eat? They lock the door and suffer the noises alone. No one is exempt and everyone's pain has a different smell. Well, smell should be the trigger that gets us this one. When do the young suffer openly? If you've ever been around a newborn baby when it has to have a bowel movement, it makes all sorts of interesting faces. It's talking about going to the restroom. It's about talking about going to the washroom suffering the noises that just kills me what a what a way of re what a way of rendering what one does in a washroom but you know i've been in some public washrooms when some people were suffering the noise i wish they'd have been doing it alone because i had to be in the same relative space as them everyone's pain has a different smell ah it's too bodily it's too strange but making the familiar unfamiliar i mean 
Who but a poet could do such a thing? It just kills me. I absolutely love it. Only the young are allowed to suffer openly. The rest of us go to a punishment room. That's what you need to start. You know, I mean, I, I, sorry, everyone. I just you know, excuse myself. I need to go to the punishment room. At night, when all the colors die, they hide in pairs and read about themselves in color with their eyelids shut. At night, when all the colors die, they hide in pairs and read about themselves in color with their eyelids shut. This describing someone, someone, you know, as uh, Jonathan Gottschall has said in his book, The Storytelling Animal, that we as a species love stories so much that we will do it when we're asleep. We will, we will craft stories even when we're asleep. Our dreams, they're random, they're weird, but there's narratives there nonetheless. And we read about ourselves, Craig Rain says, in color with our eyelids shut, the eye moving perhaps in REM sleep, but dreams nonetheless, reading about ourselves in color with our eyelids shut. The art of making the familiar unfamiliar. Emily St. John Mandel does it in Station Eleven with all of these objects that are mundane and everyday. They're the things that we recognize. But at the Severn City Airport, they become a little strange. They become new in the post-apocalypse because they are rendered through the eyes of those who maybe remember them, but there's no use for them anymore, or those who have never seen them before. There's a beautiful, beautiful scene in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, the post-apocalyptic narrative, The Road, when the father gives the son, they find a, an old uh, soft drink machine, and the father goes, oh, could I be that lucky? And he tips it over, cranks it open, gets out the last can of whatever, some soda, and he gives it to his son. Stephen King did this too with, with Pop in a book, uh, the second book in the Dark Tower series, where a character from another world comes to ours and has a Coca-Cola for the first time. And it make both of these passages, both King and McCarthy, make the familiar of cracking open a can of Coke and drinking it unfamiliar and remind us how remarkable this is. Like it's 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 every day. You know, we can have a Coke whenever we want. But what if the world ended? How special would a Coca-Cola become? How special would a cup of coffee become? In, in Canada especially. Like, we don't grow coffee. We'd have to make something like chicory, which is no substitute. So these everyday things, these, these everyday wonders, these everyday miracles that Clark reflects upon the last time he danced in a club. And, you know, living through COVID, we certainly relate to that. But, but that this renders the familiar unfamiliar and helps us to see it new. And that's why I wanted to also talk about Nathan Pyle's wonderful, beautiful, lovely, hilarious Stranger Planet comics, wherein he has these aliens who live on Earth and they seem to just live on Earth and do all sorts of Earth things. But they always talk in English that, that tells you what they're talking about, but not in the way that we would normally say it, not in our usual uh, collocations or the usual cliched terms that we would use or the, the most common terms. In fact, the way that uh, the aliens talk in Stranger Planet is a little bit like how I tell my students never to write. Don't write with like big pretentious words because you're not really communicating. But what Nathan Pyle is doing here is done for laughs, for a little bit of, of, of humor. So here we have child going to bed, parent looking in, and the child says, one last hydration cylinder? Okay. What's being said? Can I have another drink of water? That's, that's what's being said there. Ingest it now, says the parent alien. Please keep the corridor illuminated. Okay. 
And then it, this ends with a nod, and this is why I included this one first. It end, this ends with a nod to the last stanza of uh, Craig Rain's Martian Sense Postcard Home. Imagine pleasant nonsense. <laughs> That's there, There's a way of describing dreams. Imagine pleasant nonsense, right? We, sweet dreams. That's that's what's happened there. The language being translated as though it is spoken through alien speech and through the way that Nathan Pyle reorganizes concepts that are everyday for us. In a way, I think every one of his strips allow us to see things that are everyday for the first time again. I feel suboptimal, says the one alien to the other. I am not trained for this as the other. Nonetheless, I will place my hand here, placing a hand on the head. Yes. Feels like you require validation. Sit. <laughs> I will prepare a bowl of the hot bird water. My healing commences. Feels like you require validation. Like, well, you're, you're, you might be faking it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, why don't you sit down and I'll make you some hot bird water? Chicken soup. But hot bird water always makes me laugh. Always makes me laugh. To aliens watching sports, we can tell that they're watching sports because they're wearing team jerseys. One's wearing red, the other one's wearing blue. The one wearing red has his hands up in the air in, a, in the act of, you know, the, 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 the nearly global symbol for what, you know, psychologists call Fiero. Woo! Uh, he says, I feel undeserved pride. And the other alien with his head in his hands wearing blue or turquoise. You know, his team's not winning. I feel undeserved pride, says the guy who, you know, is watching a sporting event that he's not taking part in, but he is sure excited about. And that just always kills me. I feel undeserved pride, right? We, we get invested in our sports and we're like, my team. Are you on the team? No, it's my team, right? Uh, and the other, the blue guy whose team is losing says, I regret emotional investment. Um, another alien comes in with no jersey. I heard shouting and longed for inclusion. Um, and the red shirt one goes, yes, infant. And he'd be like, what? Yeah, baby. That's what he just said. But you just turn the dial a notch or two to the right or the left and things get strange. And once they're strange, maybe we can see it again for the first time. Like when the turquoise alien says excrement. Well, we know what he's saying. We know what he's saying. And the other one says snacks, just recognizes that they're snacks. Two aliens sitting beside each other. One's got earbuds and he's offering it to the other and says, put this in your head. I want you to hear vibrations that affect my emotions. That's what sound is. Vibrations. It's wavelengths, right? These waveforms. And they hit our hearing organs and they vibrate them. I went for a hearing test a few years back and they put things on my head and then they made my, they, they, which stimulated my, you know, the, the, the organs that help my brain under, like that interpret sound for my brain <laughs> it's a funny way I, even just explaining this is like i have to talk about this in a weird um but i i had these things on my head and they, they would stimulate those and i would hear things even though this pause there was no sound in the room how cool is that how cool is that put this in your head i want you to hear vibrations that affect my emotions and the one who's getting the earbud says so that mine are also affected and the one the other, the other one says if all goes as planned this is making me sad. And I listen to it when I'm sad to compound your sadness. Exactly. Well, the strangeness here, and Pyle does this a number of times with his Stranger Planet comics, is to identify something that's really kind of bizarre. I feel sad. 
So I'm going to listen to sad music that matches my sadness. You don't want to feel better? No, I need to listen to this sad music. I need to watch this sad movie. I'm going to cry. Get me a box of Kleenex because I'm going to go watch this sad. Why do we do that? But we do. And it, it just, it, it's a little strange lens turned on us as people to help us maybe recognize the beauty of our everyday lives. Like every one of these instances, there was a Martian or an alien or an alien world. Because the post-apocalyptic world of Station Eleven is one we don't live in. It is familiar, just in the same way that aliens are often anthropomorphic. They have two arms, two legs, head like we do. Why do they look so much like us so often? Why don't they look really, really weird? Why aren't they like utterly different? Because usually when you give us things that are utterly different from us, it produces a sense of revulsion or horror. That's why we don't generally like bugs because um, they're so different from us. But the strangeness of such narratives can have us see our world, the one that we live in with new eyes. So the map in its representation can be a strange map be a strange representation. So people are like, oh, I, I just, I read realistic texts because I want, you know, ones that are closest to my reality. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to stop you from that. But I think one of the beauties of narratives that are strange in some way, that's my wheelhouse, speculative literature. It's always a little strange. Science fiction, fantasy, horror, always a little strange. But in that strangeness, which is usually rendered within familiar context, you know, like a lot of horror movies happen in houses that look like yours or mine. They happen in spaces that we recognize. They happen to people that feel like us. And it gives us that, that sense of recognition and so that we can connect with the narrative. And then the narrative makes it strange in some way so that, you know, we experience something new. We experience something, um, potentially for the first time again, we see it, we see it through strange lenses. And I think we understand Clark very well because of the strangeness of our past year, the strangeness of 2020 leading into 2021. So that when Clark muses why in his life of frequent travel, or I guess St. John Mandel muses on Clark's behalf, why in his life of frequent travel had he never recognized the beauty of flight, we can nod and we can say, yeah, yeah, me too. I tried very hard throughout my life to recognize the beauty of the everyday, the, uh, the wonder of moments that were mundane. But I have to say this past year, I really have at several points wondered and recognized the beauty of flight and how precious it is and how tenuous a thing it is as well. Station 11 in its use of the Museum of Civilization through the plot element of Clark being at the Severn City Airport creates a space that may have us walk away from it wondering what would I preserve in such an airport? What would I have brought to contribute to the Museum of Civilization had I been at the Severn City Airport? What would I likely have been carrying in my luggage that would no longer be useful that I would put in that? A thing that fiction does to us and asks us the question now what would you do but it asks at the end of the terminal not so much just what would you do but what would you miss